The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Do that by looking at God's Word. We're told in Scripture that the only way to worship God is by means of the Holy Spirit and by means of truth. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so we begin our time to worship God through the teaching of His Word this morning by, to make sure that we're in fellowship, to make sure that we are filled by means of God the Holy Spirit, and we do that through confession of sin. Confession of sin is private. It is a function of the believer's priesthood and is between each individual believer and God the Father alone. It is not anyone else's business. It is designed to restore our fellowship and to recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can move forward in the Christian life. So with that, let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are indeed in fellowship and ready to study. Father, again, we come to You to worship You this morning by learning Your Word. Nothing is more important to us to realize that our thinking must be characterized by the thinking of Christ, which is divine viewpoint, and that there is a point of view in the Scriptures to everything in life, and we must learn that. And the learning of that is, is it is assimilated into our soul, is called epinosis in the Scripture, which is the basis for wisdom and living the spiritual life. So, Father, now we realize that only through the function of our priesthood in learning Your Word can we grow spiritually and thereby glorify You in all that we do. We have the Holy Spirit given to us, who is our teacher, our guide, our instructor, and we pray that under His ministry today we can understand these things we study in Your Word, that we may apply them, that we can uh, grow in our spiritual life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying the Gospel of John, and yet we have taken a little detour in our study of the Gospel of John to look at a subject that is very important, especially in our world today, and a subject that many, many people do not understand. We came to the first day in the life of John the Baptist, and we saw how he was confronted by a group of religious leaders in Israel at that time. Then we came to the second day in the life of John the Baptist, and we saw that Jesus returned from his 40 days in the wilderness, and John referred to the fact that he had baptized the Lord, and that the Lord would be the one who would baptize by means of the Holy Spirit in the future. We came to the subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we took a few Sundays to discuss what baptism was, specifically what the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit is, and how that relates to every single believer. And then we had to ask an important question that has been raised in our generation and in our century. Is there a connection between what the Bible calls the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues? When we discuss the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we ask the question, is there one or are there two baptisms of the Holy Spirit? 
And we saw that it is clear from Scripture, both the prophecies in the Gospels and the fulfillment in Acts and in 1 Corinthians 12.13, that there is only one baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, that the same terminology is used throughout the New Testament to describe this uh, act by, uh, that is performed ultimately by God the Son, who utilizes God the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation to place us into union with Christ into His body. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is not experiential. The only way you know about it is afterwards when you come to a study of the Scriptures and we are told that it has taken place and that it has many ramifications. Last week we began to look at the second question. Is there a connection between excuse me, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the spiritual gift of tongues. We saw that the spiritual gift of tongues was prophesied in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 28.11, this is referred to in 1 Corinthians 14.21 by the Apostle Paul, that it was prophesied as a warning sign of impending divine judgment on the nation Israel. So the purpose underlying the spiritual gift of tongues has to do with God's plan and purpose for Israel. It is not related to something that would be normative in the church age. We looked at its prophecy in Isaiah 28, and then we looked at its fulfillment in Acts chapter 2. As we looked at Acts, we saw that there are three occasions in the uh, uh, Acts narrative that relate to the speaking in tongues. One happens on the day of Pentecost. The second happens at the Gentile Pentecost in Acts 10 and 11 when Peter goes to Cornelius. They accept Christ as their Savior. And as they are filled with the Holy Spirit, the Gentiles speak in tongues to show to all the Jews that what has happened to the Gentiles in Caesarea is the same as what happened to the Jews at Pentecost. And so there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. The fact that these Gentiles spoke in uh, various Gentile languages at that time that they had not learned before would have spread throughout Israel just as the fact of their salvation spread throughout Israel and was evidence to the Jews that God was doing something. And if they were attuned to the prophecy of Isaiah 28.11, they would have realized that this had prophetic significance. That they did not as a sign of their... Rejection of Christ, the rejection of God's grace, and the basis for their divine judgment in 70 A.D. The third instance of tongues in the book of Acts occurs in Acts chapter 19 when Paul gives the gospel to some disciples of John the Baptist. They represent Old Testament saints. They uh, speak in tongues when they are filled with the Holy Spirit as a sign that Old Testament saints are brought into the body of Christ on the same basis as Gentiles and Jews, therefore, to show the unity of the body of Christ. That it is that racial distinction, temporal distinctions, sex distinctions are no longer an issue. We are all one in the body of Christ. That's the basis for 1 Corinthians 12.13, which you should turn to in your Bibles uh, now, and we will discuss this passage eventually this morning. 1 Corinthians 12.13, For by one Spirit, literally by means of one Spirit, we, that is, all believers, were past tense at the moment of salvation. Every single believer is baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. For by means of one Spirit, we were 
all baptized into one body. That is the body of Christ, whether Jew or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. And that brought us to the question that we are answering this morning. And that is, is the gift of tongues for today? Very, very critical question. Many people today are confused over this. Uh, This does not mean that they are not saved necessarily. Uh, It does not necessarily mean that they are demon-possessed or something like that. But it does mean that they may be very confused over the spiritual life. And unfortunately, when we come to this subject, it is usually very emotional with people. They immediately react and say, Oh, you don't believe in the gift of tongues, therefore you're missing out and you can't really know what the Scripture says because you don't have the Holy Spirit. And all of that, unfortunately, is easy to say for people who do not want to grapple with what the Word of God actually means. And unfortunately, in the charismatic movement, it is, all, all, uh, it is dominated by a lot of mystical thought, which is based on irrationalism and emotionalism. And what really matters is not all this slavery to the literal Word of the Bible. Let's just let God speak directly to us. And if God is going to speak directly to us, though, it will not contradict what God spoke directly through the apostles in the Word of God. So therefore, if the Word of God, if the Bible is the Word of God and is infallible and is our absolute guide to faith and practice, then we must look at what the Scripture says about this subject. To understand the answer to this question, we must begin with a little background in the epistle to the Galatian, I mean to the Corinthians. We must understand something about this area called Corinth. In my rough diagram here to approximate a map, we have the peninsula here, uh, the Greek peninsula. Down here there's a little land bridge or isthmus to the peninsula down here where the city of Corinth is found. Out here is the Mediterranean, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And Corinth was situated on this isthmus and had two harbors here on the isthmus, which made it a one of the most prominent seaports in the ancient world. And that meant that it was an area that was rich in commerce and that people came there from all over the ancient world, from Asia and Europe. It was a Roman colony, and it is the hub of a very lucrative trade throughout the ancient world. There had a sizable Jewish community there, and the rigorous morality of the Pharisaical Jews stood out in contrast with the licentious paganism that was popular in Corinth. In fact, Corinth was such a hotbed of seething licentiousness and immorality that the term Corinth was a synonym throughout the ancient world for someone who practiced unrestrained immorality. Now, for centuries before the coming of Christ, for itinerant sailors, retired soldiers had flocked to Corinth as a retirement location. And they brought with them all of their various gods and goddesses which created a religious melting pot in Corinth. There you could find temples to the gods of Egypt, the gods of Persia, and the gods of Anatolia, along with all of the degenerate rites of the phallic cult. And all of these religious ideas were assimilated into the 
Greek religions of Mount Olympus. In fact, Corinth was known for their temple to Athena, where over a thousand temple prostitutes enticed the religious devotees to immorality as a basis for having a relationship with the goddess. Over the years prior to the New Testament, the traditional gods of Greece, then the respect for the traditional gods of Greece deteriorated. Just a historical note here, there is always the following trend in history. There develops a strong basis for rationalism. Rationalism always emphasizes human, human reason as a basis for interpreting everything. And usually with rationalism comes a lot of religious skepticism. So rationalism is usually followed by religious skepticism. Skeptic, on the basis of skepticism, there's very little hope left. Because people have debunked, rationalism debunked the gods and goddesses of the culture. As a result, there's now skepticism, there's no hope, there's no eternal life, there's no basis for that. And since rationalism can't provide ultimate answers, uh, skepticism is hollow and empty. Skepticism is always followed by mysticism. This happened in the ancient world. Rationalism came with the great philosophers from uh, Socrates through Plato and Aristotle, you had the rise of Greek rationalism. That produced skepticism which dominated in the uh, following centuries so that by the 2nd century into the 1st century B.C. and 1st century A.D. you have the rise of Oriental mysticism and the popularity of the Oriental mystery religions in, in Greece. Same thing has happened in our history, hasn't it? Rationalism arose in the 16th to 17th centuries. By the 19th century, you have the development of religious skepticism, which played itself out in terms of 19th century religious liberalism, uh, the rise of Darwinistic evolution, various philosophies like that. And now what has happened, starting really in the 60s, you see the development of mysticism and religious mysticism and the rise of the New Age movement and uh, postmodernist philosophy and all of this is ultimately based on mysticism. So you see the same trend. Well, as mysticism dominated in the ancient world in Corinth and provided the ideological and religious context as a backdrop to understanding the problems in Corinth and the problems they had with tongues, it's also the backdrop for understanding what's going on in the 20th century as a backdrop to the rise of Pentecostalism. Why is it, you might ask, if you were a thinking person, that among all of the epistles that Paul wrote in the ancient world to, cities, to various cities, why is it that it was only the Corinthians that had a problem with tongues? It's never mentioned in any other epistle. It must have something to do with the matrix of culture and ideas in Corinth. Why is it that the tongues movement that we see today around us, the Pentecost, whether you call it the Pentecostal movement, the charismatic movement, the third wave, the vineyard movement, signs and wonders, whatever tag you put on it, why is it that it did not develop until the, 19th, I mean, the end of the 19th century and the, literally the first day of the 20th century? It grows out of a cultural context. And it's in that cultural context of 19th century skepticism that you see people starting to react to this uh, rationalistic skepticism to 
uh, emotion and experience. So there are a lot of parallels between what has happened in our world and what happened in the ancient world. At that time in ancient in, in Corinth, when the Apostle Paul arrived in the autumn of 49 A.D. to proclaim the gospel, he began by going to the Jewish synagogues. He got a few converts, created some dissension, was kicked out, and then he went to the Gentiles, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentiles. And in Acts 18.8, we're told that many of the Corinthians believed. So we can say safely that the emerging congregation, this new spiritually infant congregation, was the product of this Greek culture. That's their backdrop. That's their frame of reference for understanding spirituality and religion. So they came from a background of, of extreme immorality, humanistic philosophy, and heathen mythology. That had formed the, the context of their thinking. So if we're going to understand it, understand these passages in, in Corinthians, we must understand a little bit about their culture. Now, I mentioned mysticism and the mystery religions. They were called mystery religions because they, they, were, they said there was some kind of mystery knowledge, unrevealed knowledge, not mystery in the sense of a whodunit, but mystery in the sense of unrevealed knowledge, that there was some secret knowledge that you had to learn about if you were going to have a relationship with the gods. And usually they would go up into... Uh, various religious centers up in the hills or in the temples, and they would have an ecstatic experience, an emotional high, and some kind of something would happen where the gods spoke to them and gave them this key. And so uh, this was their initiation into this religious system. There were three major cults that dominated the thinking in Greece. The first had to do with the worship of Apollo. The second had to do with the worship of Dionysius. And the third revolved around the Kibbele Addis cult. This is sometimes spelled with a C, but the correct spelling is with a K. Now let's understand these a little bit. Apollo had a major shrine at Delphi. Delphi was just across the isthmus from Corinth. And at that infamous shrine in the ancient world, there was a high priestess who was called the Oracle at Delphi. And people would go to the Oracle to find out all kinds of things about their future. Today, they pick up a psychic hotline and call an 800 number or 900 number and they find out their future. But back in the ancient world, they didn't have a telephone system, so they had to go to Delphi. Now, the priestess there spoke in ecstatic utterances. That means gibberish to most of us. But it was claimed to be a language of the gods. She was said to be possessed by a spirit. A spirit called a Numa Puthanos. As this is a Numa, just like the Holy Spirit, P-N-U-M-A. It's the word for spirit. And Puthanos. Spirit of the Python. Now, the basis for this mythologically was that at this location there had once been this enormous python in this temple, and the apostle, I mean, Apollo came down 
and killed the python and established a shrine and there was established to him a shrine at that location and it was there that the prophetess who was called Pythia for the Puthanos demon that inhabited her uh, and spoke through her in prophecies um, and gave out a and she also spoke in a mysterious divine language and her priestess attendants would then translate that mysterious language uh, several centuries later a Christian writer by the name of Chrysostom wrote this same Pythonus Pythonus then is said, being a female, to sit at times upon the tripod of Apollo astride, and thus the evil spirit, ascending from beneath and entering the lower part of her body, fills the woman with madness, and she, with disheveled hair, begins to play the bacchanal and to foam at the mouth, and thus being in a frenzy to utter the words of her madness. That's what went on. She spoke in ecstatic utterance and just... It was supposedly a divine language and uh, analogous perhaps to a prayer language. And her priestess attendants would translate that to people. The second cult was the Dionysius cult. Now there's a connection between Dionysus and Apollo because uh, Dionysius, the Dionysian cult came out of Turkey and was brought into Greece and assimilated. And what would happen is that Apollo went on vacation six months a year from Delphi, and he was replaced by Dionysius. So there's this connection there that's very important. And in these uh, mystery religions, the thrust of them, what, what was formed the foundation, was that they offered to the religious devotee immortality through initiation into a secret experience experience which would then save the soul after death. I want you to understand the parallels with what we're going to see in Christianity. The mystery religions offered immortality through initiation into a secret experience that was designed to save the soul after death. According to Aristotle, the emphasis was not on learning anything, but on feeling certain emotions and entering into a certain frame of mind. It's very important to understand this because this is the mindset of the typical Corinthian who just became a believer. This was his frame of reference. They would have these secret rites where the emotions of the participant were inflamed in a torchlight ceremony as they had a parade up the trail into the uh, mountain grove with the throbbing beat of the drums and erotic dancing flowing wine, and at times they would get so worked up that they would tear the sacrificial animals limb from limb while the animal was still alive and they would eat the raw flesh. They would just get so worked up emotionally. And at the height of this ritual, the idolater was said to be mystically united with the God so that the God indwelt him and spoke through him in a mysterious language. The Dionysian cult was one of the most extreme forms of these mystery religions. And as part of Dionysian worship, they, they spoke in ecstatic languages. They emphasized healing and miracles as evidence of being filled by this God. Do you see the parallel? That this was a satanic counterfeit of what would be part of the spiritual life is obvious. In fact, one of the scholars, uh, Greek scholars, and, and a very well-known theological work called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament writes the following. 
that the languages produced in this frenzy were uh, similar to were, were in the divine mantisism of the Delphic Phrygia, of the Bassids, and the Sibyls. These are all various mythological creatures. The unintelligible lists of magical names and letters in the magic papyri of this time, which are used in the invoking and conjuring of gods and spirits, may also be analogous to this obscure and meaningless speaking with tongues. Now, this guy calls it speaking with tongues because he's a liberal. And liberal theologians don't believe in anything supernatural, that Christianity is just like any other religion. So they interpret all of these ecstatic utterances as speaking in tongues. But the point I want to make from this quote is that he recognizes as a a, uh, great scholar of the classical period this similarity between what the Bible calls speaking in tongues and what was happening in their day-to-day life with their mystery religions. And if they can come to that confusion, my point is that the Corinthians made this same confusion. Coming out of this background, when they heard about the spiritual gift of tongues, they interpreted it within the framework of their mystery religions. And so instead of understanding it as as speaking in legitimate human languages, they interpreted it as this emotional, mystical experience as a sign of the God indwelling them. Any Gentile initiate of the Dionysian cult would believe that emotional excitement and speaking in ecstatic utterances, which were, quote, used by the gods and spirits in heaven, was evidence of a special relationship with the gods. That's the point. If they were saved out of this background, they thought that if you spoke in tongues and did all this and had this ecstatic experience, then that was evidence that you had a close relationship with God. In other words, emotion became their criterion for evaluating the spiritual life. So when they spoke in these ecstatic utterances, the other point to make is that when they spoke in ecstatic utterances, the benefit was personal. It was only personal. If you were in a mystery religion, the only person that got any benefit out of this was the individual who was performing the action. No one else understood what was being said. And so it was just the fact that you had this emotional experience that sort of got you jazzed up so that you could go out and, uh, and live on the basis of this experience. The third mystery religion at this time was, came from the Sibylle Attis cult, which in Anatolia or Turkey was intimately connected with the worship of Dionysius. So all these things come together in the ancient world. And as part of their practice, they would uh, try to invoke the gods with clashing cymbals, banging drums, and loud gongs. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13.1? 1 Corinthians 13.1 says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What do you think he means by that? He's making a direct reference to these religious practices that dominated in Corinth. So he's, he's the sarcasm and the facetiousness of the Apostle Paul throughout these three chapters is incredible. Now, In their emotional excitement, as they would dance in a frenzy, their goal was to achieve this status of irrational ecstasy so that they could speak in a mysterious gibberish. So all three of these mystery religions encouraged their people to to get all emotionally excited and speak in this gibberish in order to give evidence that they had a relationship with God. So 
emotion was confused with spirituality. Now, this wasn't unique to this particular time in the first century. A hundred years later, you had a man by the name of Montanus arise in, uh, in the same area in Turkey, in Anatolia. In fact, Montanus, before he was saved, was a priest of Sibylle. So he had been part of this Sibylle Addis cult. And he began a Christian sect which espoused these same heretical views, emphasizing uh, irrational, ecstatic prophecy about the return of Christ, miracles, and emotional experience as a criterion for spirituality. Uh, Since these later Montanists, a hundred years later, confused emotion, frenzy, and ecstatics with spirituality, it's real clear that the first century Corinthians were making the same error. And I think that the same error is what underlies the Pentecostal charismatic movement today. Now, that's background to Corinth in terms of their religious background. Now we have to understand something about the Corinthians believers themselves. Now, remember, in the Pentecostal, the original Pentecostal understanding of the gift of tongues, you had to have a second work of grace after salvation in order to have everything that God has for you. That second work of grace would sort of elevate you to a higher level of spirituality. They called that second work of grace the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it was evidenced by speaking in tongues. And you had to have that if you were really going to be spiritual, because that baptism with the Holy Spirit is what would make you spiritual. Now, the issue here is, is that what happened in Corinth? Well, let's see what Paul says about the Corinthians in this epistle. The Corinthians were perhaps the most carnal, screwed up, out of fellowship bunch in the entire New Testament. Paul confronts them with the fact that they're operating on human viewpoint rather than Bible doctrine in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3. Positionally, they had become new creatures in Christ. They were believers. Nevertheless, they are still the same old sinners with the same old human viewpoint dominating the mentality of their soul. Their sin list is appalling. They're accused of pride, envy, jealousy, childishness, pettiness, gossip, maligning, adultery, incest, and drunkenness. As a result, it's the most fragmented and unstable congregation in the New Testament era. Yet, because of the abundance of God's grace, the church was filled with spiritual gifts, according to 1 Corinthians 1.7. Now remember, spiritual gifts are given at the moment of salvation. So every believer in the church had at least one spiritual gift and could utilize it. But because they were in carnality, according to 1 Corinthians 3.1-3, they couldn't use their spiritual gifts. They were operating out of the sin nature. So we have to understand the carnal background here of the Corinthians. They were divided, they were confused, they were carnal. There's little of anything spiritual to commend this group of believers. Paul nailed them for their competition over baptism in 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 17. He rebuked them for their excessive carnality and lack of spiritual growth in 1 Corinthians 3, 3. They rejected Bible doctrine and those who communicated doctrine in 1 Corinthians 3, 18 to 22. They were arrogant in a variety of areas, uh, including dragging fellow believers before unbelieving judges to resolve their disputes and contentious women in 1 Corinthians 11:2 through 16. 
they were split according to the various trends in their, in their sin nature towards legalism and asceticism. Those who were involved in, in legalism and asceticism were confused and self-righteous concerning marriage, divorce, and sexuality in 1 Corinthians 7. These legalists created discord over eating meat sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians 8. They accused Paul of money lust because he was remunerated for his teaching ministry in 1 Corinthians 9. Those who followed their trend toward antinomianism returned to the licentious patterns of their Greek culture. They tolerated incest in 1 Corinthians 5.1, fornication in 1 Corinthians 6, participated in the phallic cult in 1 Corinthians 6.15, and they exploited the Lord's table as an excuse for gluttony and drunkenness in 1 Corinthians 11.17. So we're not talking about a group of people here that are just really excited about their relationship with the Lord and walking by means of the Holy Spirit, are we? This is as screwed up a bunch of Christians as you'll find at any time in church history. Just because they, they, quote, spoke in tongues had nothing to do with their spirituality. In fact, what we can guess from our background studies is what they were doing and calling speaking in tongues wasn't the biblical gift of tongues at all. What they were doing in their carnality is imitating the pagan practices of the mystery religions that they had grown up with. And they were taking those ideas over into their experience in Christianity and trying to identify it. And the result was division and emotionalism and nobody knew what was going on at all in Corinth. Now, 1 Corinthians 14, which we won't have time to go through because that's not my point. I don't want to deal with 14 because chapter 14 regulates the spiritual gift. Well, if the spiritual gift is no longer valid, then it doesn't need to be regulated. So we don't really need to do a point-by-point exegesis there. But one thing I do want to emphasize is that is what is said in 1 Corinthians 14.4. 1 Corinthians 14.4 says, One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. And Paul is simply making the point that if you go out here and have this ecstatic utterance, the only person who's benefiting from it is you. Now, the biblical gift of tongues is a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift, by definition, is given to you to edify others in the body, not yourself. If you're using your spiritual gift for your personal benefit, then you're in arrogance and self-absorption and you're distorting the spiritual gift. So therefore, what's our conclusion? The spiritual gift was never designed for devotions. The spiritual gift was never, of tongues was never designed as a prayer language because all that violates its fundamental definition as a spiritual gift. So whatever else the Apostle Paul is saying in chapter 14, he is saying what he concludes later on, that he would rather speak five words with his mind than 10,000 words in a tongue. Because when these people got involved in ecstatic utterance, the mind was disengaged. And it is the mind, the mentality of the soul, that is the basis for much of the spiritual life. Remember, the Christian life is a life based on thought. It is based on uh, thinking the thoughts of Christ, having in us the mind of Christ. Okay, let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 12 and just briefly summarize what we find here about spiritual gifts. Everybody is given a spiritual gift at the point of salvation. And no spiritual gift is more important than any other spiritual gift to the body of Christ. Some have greater significance in one arena or another, 
but all are of value. Just Paul uses the analogy in verses 14 down through 22, and he talks about the foot and the hand. He says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. In other words, if you're a believer and your spiritual gift is one of the less seen spiritual gifts like the gift of service or the gift of mercy or maybe the gift of administration, and it's not as obvious as the gift of evangelism or pastor teacher, which are more overt gifts, you don't have any right to say, well, my gift isn't relevant. It doesn't matter. I'm just a nobody. All I'm going to do is sit in the pew and learn doctrine and let the people with the really important gifts get up there and do things. Every gift is important, just like every player on a football team is important. The quarterback and the running backs and the ends get a lot of the glory, but they couldn't do what they're doing if it weren't for the guards and the tackles and the guys that were doing the grunt work and blocking for them. And the same thing is true in the spiritual life. This church cannot operate apart from the people with the spiritual gift of helps and administration and mercy, doing all the behind-the-scenes work. That's, that's, where it real, that's what makes it work. All the gifts are important. That's what Paul is make, the point that Paul is making. But he also is going to make a point that some are more significant than others because, and these are the communication gifts. Look down in verse 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Notice when he ranks them and gives numbers, one, two, and three are communication gifts. The gift of apostle communicated uh, the New Testament revelation. So did the gift of prophet. Those are no longer in effect today. Ephesians um, 2.20 says that they were foundational gifts. When you build a house, the church is compared to a house. When you build a house, you only lay the foundation once. Once the foundation is built, everything else goes on top of it. The foundation that is laid is the foundation of doctrine in the Scripture. Once that was given, it's no longer repeated. It's given once for all and does not need to be repeated from one generation to the next. That was the function of the communication gifts. Uh, The pastor-teacher has a communication gift because it's important to learn doctrine. You can't grow without learning doctrine. So communication gifts are vital to the growth of the, of the body of Christ. That's where our nutrition comes from as we take in the Word of God. The other gifts then are not ranked sequentially. They are just listed. Miracles, gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And there we learn, and the inference in all of this towards the, the Corinthians, is that they were placing tongues, which is listed last, as more important than even a communication gift of pastor-teacher. In other words, they were saying it's more important for us to have this experience with God than it is for us to sit and study and learn doctrine. So they elevated experience over doctrine, which is something that is very common in the charismatic Pentecostal movement. So we look at the issue of spiritual gifts, we realize that the present conception of spiritual gifts in the charismatic Pentecostal movement is in direct contradiction to what is taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The highest priority gifts were those that related to the communication of doctrine because that's the only way that we can grow in the spiritual life. Now, before we get into 1 Corinthians 13, 8, 
we need to remind ourselves that the spiritual life is based on thinking doctrine. It's not based on emotion. Emotion should never be the basis for making decisions or evaluating the Christian life. Emotion can never learn. Emotion cannot analyze or solve problems. Emotion cannot produce spiritual growth. It's easier for people to rely on emotion, though, than invest their energy in concentrating on doctrine and in having the self-discipline to think and to go to Bible class and listen to somebody teach for 45 minutes, an hour, or even longer. God designed emotion to be a responder to the mentality in the soul, not to be the initiator. When emotion overruns the mentality of the soul, the result is subjectivity, irrationality, and self-absorption. And emotionalism was a rampant problem in the Corinthian church. But let us remind ourselves what the Bible says. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. Proverbs 23.7 Colossians 3.2 is a mandate to believers. Set your mind, that is, the thinking part of your soul. Set your mind, not your emotions, on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Ephesians 4.23 And that you be renewed by means of the Holy Spirit in your mind. That is, we are renewed by means of thinking. The Holy Spirit helps our thinking as we think about doctrine and apply it to our lives. And then Philippians 2.5, have this attitude. The Greek word there is phreneo. Phreneo refers to objective thinking. Have this thinking, therefore, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. How do you learn to think like Christ? By learning doctrine. The Word of God is called the mind or the thinking of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. Therefore, we conclude that what God says is more important than how we feel. What God says is the only thing that matters in terms of our spiritual life, not how we feel. When God's Word becomes more real to you than any emotion, any circumstance, or any experience, then you're beginning to move forward in the spiritual life. Only by learning Bible doctrine can you come to know God. Only by learning doctrine can you know God and then love God. You cannot love what you do not know. And you cannot know what you haven't taken the time and the discipline to learn. You have to renovate your thinking through Bible doctrine. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not your emotions, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the spiritual life is a life of thought, a life based on thinking, Bible, doctrine. Now, let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. The key verse that we want to look at here to answer the question, is the gift of tongues for today, is verse 10. Verse 10 says, But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And this is the whole issue. What does it mean when it says when the perfect comes? What exactly does that mean? Well, there's two ways you can interpret this word, but let's look at it in the Greek first. In the Greek, the word is telios. T-E-L-E-I-O-S. It is a neuter adjective. 
Now, this word we've seen in various forms in our study of James on Wednesday nights and in our study of the Gospel of John. There are, in, in the ancient world, there were two categories of meaning to this word. One had to do with the quality of a thing. The other had to do with quantity. It can't mean both. It's either or. It's either quality or quantity. Quality has to do with something that is has no imperfections in it. So, in terms of a qualitative idea, you would translate it as perfect. If a quality idea, quantity idea has to do with how much there is of something. You either have a little or a lot. If something is partial, then it is. Then when you have it, when it's telios, it is complete. It is made complete or brought to completion. So these are the two different ideas: uh, moral perfection or completion. A perfect state indicates a quality situation. Incomplete or complete indicates a quantity or how much. So we have to use the context to determine whether perfect here has a, this, what's translated perfect has a quality idea or a quantity idea, has a context. It is contrasted with another idea in that verse. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So it is obvious that partial is a quantity idea. So if this is going to have any meaning, then the word must be translated complete to be consistent with the context. Now let's apply this in terms of interpretation. When the word is understood as having a quantity idea, it's interpreted to refer to the second coming of Christ, the second coming or... When the believer dies and is face to face with the Lord. And they get that idea. They try to derive that out of verse 12. And we'll see that's a wrong idea. It's a perfect idea. They go to face to face in verse 12 to say this is talking about coming face to face with the Lord. But that won't fit as we shall see. Now, you'd be amazed at how many people, even in among those who do not believe the gift of tongues has continued, who want to take perfect as a, a telios, as a quanti, or quality perfective idea and say it's the second coming. Or even that it's when the believer dies and he's face to face with the Lord in heaven, then he will know everything. But it, as I'm pointing out here, this doesn't fit the context. Because the context is comparing knowledge and prophecy which are partial to to Laios, which is complete. The idea of perfection doesn't enter in. The context here is talking about partial and complete rather than partial and perfect. Partial and perfect are two different categories. You can't compare quality and quantity. You're either comparing two, uh, you're either comparing apples or oranges. You're not going to compare apples to oranges. Quality is an apple idea, quantity is an orange idea, and you can't confuse them. You have to stay in the same category. So the idea here for understanding what the perfect is, is quantity. It's that which is complete will complete what is partial. So obviously this category of interpretation, the second coming, or being face to face with the Lord or the millennial kingdom or any of the ideas there, just don't fit the context. They totally violate the basic meaning of the words. Now, let's back up to 13.8. 
so that we can understand Paul's argument in this passage. Paul says in verse 8, love never fails. That's the main idea here. He says love is never going to fail. This is going to continue. It's never going to be abrogated. But, contrast, three things are going to be abrogated. If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there, are, if there is knowledge, it will be done away. So we're talking about three spiritual gifts here. We're talking about prophecy, tongues, and I'm going to put tongues down here because it's dealt with separately, and knowledge. Now, prophecy and knowledge are revelatory gifts. That means they were used by God to reveal doctrine to people. A prophet was given information by God to communicate and knowledge was also information to communicate to believers about living the spiritual life in a time when they did not have the completed New Testament canon of Scripture. So prophecy and knowledge are revelatory. Tongues was a sign gift. It was a sign of judgment to the Jews. Prophecy and knowledge are said to be abolished. The Greek word here is katargeo. That's the verb. They are both said to be abolished. Katargeo. K-A-T-A-R-G-E-O. But tongues is not abolished. It's a different word. He uses the, Paul uses the word pao. P-A-U-O. Up here it's passive. In other words, something's going to happen that is going to knock prophecy and knowledge out of the ballgame. They will be acted upon completely. That's the sense of the passive. They receive the action. So something's going to happen to abolish prophecy and knowledge. But tongues is used in the middle voice. Not the passive, but the middle And it's a dynamic middle, which indicates that tongues is just going to die out. It's just going to disappear. Now, tongues is not mentioned again in this passage, which indicates that tongues probably would die out before the other two gifts were abolished. We know from history that it did. In 70 A.D., when Israel was taken out under the fifth cycle of discipline, When the Roman legions under Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem, Israel no longer existed as a nation, and the purpose for tongues as a sign of judgment therefore no longer existed. The the sign, what the sign signified had come to pass, so it was no longer necessary for the gift to function. But prophecy and knowledge were still in operation. It wasn't until 95 A.D. that the Apostle John received the prophecy in the book of Revelation. So it says that prophecy would be done away, katargeo, tongues would cease, pao, knowledge would be done away. Then it goes on to talk in verse 9 about these two subjects, prophecy and knowledge. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. So what characterizes prophecy and knowledge is that they are both partial. Both of them. And the Greek word here is ek merus. E-K-M-E-R-O-U-S. 
knowledge and prophecy are partial because no prophet, no apostle, no one with the gift of, of knowledge was given all the information in the New Testament at one time. They each had a piece of the puzzle. The Apostle Paul had more than anyone else, but even the Apostle Paul didn't understand everything. Some was given to the Apostle John. Some was given to the Apostle Peter. Some was given to James. Uh, Paul had the lion's share, but not all of it. So prophecy and knowledge were partial. They were revelatory gifts. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. So the subject from nine on are the two gifts of prophecy and knowledge which have to do with revelation. So if we're talking about revelation, then that which is partial is going to be completed. Verse 10, but when the completion comes, when that which completes comes, then the partial, that is the partial revelatory gifts, will be abolished. And there we have that same word again, katargeo. Notice, I mean, this is a very tight grammatical structure all through these verses. Prophecy and knowledge are partial. Then it says, what's partial, ekmerus, we have the repetition of this phrase, what's partial will be abolished, katargeo, when the perfect comes. That must be the completed canon of Scripture. That's the only thing it can be. Because it like has to be like. What completes partial revelation is complete revelation. And it is only when we have the complete revelation of God that we are able to complete our spiritual life and grow to spiritual maturity. If you have incomplete revelation, you don't know everything you need to know to pursue spiritual maturity. But once revelation is complete, then we have everything we need in order to grow to spiritual maturity. So Paul is going to illustrate this to bring it down to all of us who are a little bit slow. And I want you to notice how tight his illustrations are. He's talking about two things. He's talking about knowledge. He's talking about prophecy. Illustration number one relates to knowledge. Moving from partial to complete. Verse 11, When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. Children do that because they don't have a very complete view of life. Their knowledge is inadequate. They just know a few things. They've had very few experiences in life. They haven't been to school yet. They haven't learned very much. Their knowledge is partial. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. But when I became a man, completion takes place. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. The difference between a child and an adult is incomplete versus complete. And then verse 12. For now, and this is a critical word, now. The Greek word here is R-T, A-R-T-I. There's two different Greek words that can be used to express the concept of present time. Uh, adverbs. Uh, R-T and nuni. N-U-N-I. And we find both of them in this passage. In fact, this is what gave me the clue to understanding this passage. Verse 12, we say, for now, R-T... But in verse 13 we read, But now abide, or now continue, faith, hope, and love. Now there is Nuni. Well, why does the Apostle shift from RT to Nuni between these two verses? Is there some difference? So I looked at it and did a lot of research on this. And what I discovered is that in about 95% of the cases, these two words are synonymous. They can be used interchangeably. But when they're used within the same context then the writer emphasizes different aspects of now. 
The RT is used to indicate the exact present time. The Nuni is a little bit broader to, and would indicate more the present age. So what we find in verse 13 is, but now in the church age, continue faith, hope, and love. Remember, it's faith, hope, and love that continue. Love never fails, verse 8. And what Paul is saying in verse 12 is, but now, right now, in this present time, in this present pre-canon period, we see in a mirror dimly. What's the mirror? James 1. The mirror we look at is the mirror of the Word of God. The perfect law of liberty, James calls it. The mirror. God's Word reflects who we are. When we look in a mirror, we go to the mirror to see who we are and what we look like. Everybody got up this morning, I assume, looking around. I don't see anybody who didn't comb their hair or brush their teeth. Some of you may question that, but... um, You looked in the mirror to see what you were truly like. That's the Word of God. It tells you who you are. It's called the perspicacity of Scripture. You look in the mirror of God's Word and it tells you who you truly are. Now, you may walk away from it like James says and deny what it says and say, I'm not that bad. But then you're denying reality. The Word of God tells you reality. But when you don't have a complete canon of Scripture, you can't have a complete understanding of reality. You don't have a complete understanding of who you are. In the Old Testament, they didn't have it. They only had a partial view of reality. But with the completed New Testament canon and all the prophecy in the New Testament, the revelation there, you could then see face to face. Now, I skipped over a very important word, and I want to go back to it. For now we see in a mirror dimly. What in the world does that refer to? You see, most of the time when you read something written on this passage, they're going to say that the face-to-face here is face-to-face with the Lord. But that doesn't fit the analogy. When you look into the mirror, you're looking face-to-face with the mirror, not with some other person. There's a reflection going on. When I'm face-to-face with the Lord, He's not reflecting anything. When I'm face-to-face with the Word of God, it's reflecting me. That's what's important here, is to understand that analogy. And it's based on a passage in um, Leviticus chapter, or Numbers 21-27, based on um, a statement made by God to Moses. God says to Moses, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, notice the context. If there is a prophet among you, the analogy of, chi- of a child in verse 11, illustrates the partial and complete in knowledge. But the illustration of the mirror is going to buy into and derive from an Old Testament episode relating to prophecy. And this is what we hear the Lord saying to Moses. Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth. That is, face to face. It's the same imagery there. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. Dark sayings. Wonder how they translated that in Greek. That word is enigma. A-I-N-I-G-M-A. That's the same word that where we get our English word enigma. Kind of a mystery. 
Something we don't know about. Well, where do we find that in the New Testament? Where do you think? Right here in verse 12. For now we see in a mirror enigmatically. That's the Greek word there. So that Paul's illustration in verse 12 is an illustration of prophecy moving from partial, an incomplete mirror that just reveals things to us somewhat enigmatically because we don't have the whole story, to the fact that when we have a completed canon of Scripture, we see ourselves perfectly in that mirror face to face. And then he concludes, Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. Then when? Then when I have a completed canon of Scripture, I shall know fully just as I have been fully known. In other words, the Scripture fully knows you and fully reveals who you are to yourself. That's the point of this illustration. But now, now a broader sense, Nuni, now abide faith, hope, and love. What doesn't abide? What doesn't abide is prophecy, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. That's the point of this passage. So when we ask the question, does the spiritual gift of tongues continue today? It is clear it does not. It had a temporary purpose. That purpose was related to divine judgment on the nation Israel. Furthermore, there were other gifts that had to do with revelation that were also temporary. The gift of apostle, the gift of prophet, the gift of wisdom, the gift of knowledge. Those had to do with revelation. But once revelation was complete, when the perfect, the teleos came, the completed canon of Scripture, then they died off. We became mature in our understanding of doctrine because we had a complete mirror. And that complete mirror is perspicacious. It reveals to us all that we are and who we are in brutal honesty. And we have a choice then to go to God's Word and to respond to it as it is or to say, no, I don't really believe that. I prefer to revel in my emotions and to feel good and to have these ecstatic experiences so that I can evaluate my spiritual life by how how I feel and not by the objective, clear grammar and, and words of the New Testament. Who cares what the Bible says? My experience is more important. And that's exactly what the Charismatics say. You can find it in a number of their writings. I quoted one last week. A man with an experience is never at the mercy with someone with a doctrine. But the doctrine is where truth resides. And doctrine is what gives us the mind of Christ. And it is doctrine that is the basis for worshiping God, not experience. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You so much for the clarity of Your Word, for the completion of it, that we know that we have everything we need for life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3 That with Your Word we know what the problems are in our lives and what the solutions are. That the human solution is no solution, but the divine solution is the whole solution. And that begins at the cross, by faith alone in Christ alone. And then by taking in Your Word, letting it fill up our soul with divine viewpoint so that we can then go out and make the decisions we need to to glorify You and to grow to spiritual maturity. Father, we pray now that You would remind us of these things and that You would use all of these teachings to challenge us with the veracity of Your Word and how important it is to know Your Word and to let it transform our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.